am Dr. Amy King, otherwise known as Dr. Amy, and this podcast is the most important medicine. If you're a physician or healthcare provider, this podcast is for you. This is where we learn about trauma-informed medicine and ways to build resilience in healthcare organizations. We do this through your stories and the stories of other professionals. We listen to each other to transform medicine with compassion and curiosity about what it means to be a trauma-informed practice or provider. Every time you join me, I want you to hear practical information and leave with tangible tools you can use with patients right away. So today I am speaking with a special guest, Dr. Donna Beagle. Uh, Dr. Beagle inspires and educates individuals, organizations, politicians, and entire communities with proven models to better outcome to better outcomes for people in poverty. She's an authentic voice from poverty who speaks, writes, and trains across the nation to break the iron cage of poverty for others through services provided by her company, Communications Across Barriers. Dr. Beagle's inspiring story of moving from 28 years of homelessness to achieving a doctorate and her groundbreaking work assisting people to move out of poverty have been featured in newspapers and televisions across the nation. She has received numerous awards, and today we are here to just revel in all of her experiences and knowledge and expertise. Um, welcome, Donna. I'm so glad you're here. It is my honor, and, and I'm so excited to be here because the medical profession plays such a key role in really reducing the impacts of poverty on our fellow human beings. So it's my honor. Oh, thank you so much. And I will share again, because I try to be a model for human beingness, that I was especially excited to have you on this podcast, um, having grown up being raised by a single mom, um, where we did not have a lot, Donna. And I think there were a lot of assumptions made um, about uh, our family. And when I first heard you speak, you differentiated poverty, the term poverty from the term neglect. And it was everything to me as a person and as a professional. So I just want to first thank you for being here and for your incredible work. Um, will you start by um, just talking with folks about what you mean when you talk about the intersection of trauma and poverty? Sure. Uh, th this is really important because the, the trauma-informed research is, is so important. It's so uh, spreading around the country. Uh, and really, I think providing a shift in paradigm so that people are really beginning to move away from blame and judgment and towards saying, what's really going on here? What really happened? What would get a person to say this or do this or act this way? Uh, and the trauma-informed literature really does cover things like, um, did you grow up with a family member who experienced the disease of alcoholism? Or did you grow up with a family member who struggled with the medical condition of addiction? Or was there sexual abuse? Or it, it's really those kinds of traumas that happen within the family. The, the research participants for the trauma-informed literature uh, were middle-class college students. And so there's, there's, there's the, the really plus uh, of this literature is that we're all human beings, no matter what, whether we're in poverty, <laughs> whether we're not in poverty, we're the same species. So that research is going to have impact for all social classes. Uh, and what I teach is you also need the poverty informed 
perspectives, knowledge, and skill sets. So that's my work. I've, I've worked for the last 31 years with hospitals, um, with um, education, social service, health-based based elected officials. We do these really intensive poverty immersion institutes because I grew up in deep generations of migrant labor poverty. So I believed that nobody cared. I mean, I would watch my mom and dad go ask for help and there'd be plastic or glass between them and the people. And I remember being a child thinking, why don't you talk to my mom face to face? Mm. Why don't you like find out her name? It's not client. Mm -hmm. um, it's not patient, nor is it recipient. Mm -hmm. Her name is Ruth. Uh, so the trauma of poverty comes from those kinds of experiences where you see your family members, the people that you love, not able to get their medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, all, all through my life, our doctor was the emergency room and you get really, really sick. You go to the ER and you just hope, hope they'll give you samples because there's no way you're going to be able to buy the prescriptions that they're scribbling. Mm -hmm. So our family, we would share everything. We would share glasses that weren't prescribed for the person wearing them. They came out of a clothing closet in a church basement. We would share antibiotics. Hey, I had this last year, you know, try it. It might make you feel better. Uh, I grew up believing that your teeth go in a cup at age 30 mm -hmm. and that at age 60, you die. And the literature proves that out because uh, people who live in the crisis of poverty die on average 15 years younger than people born into a more middle-class context. Um, and a lot of people in ignorance about poverty, they'll say, well, they, they die younger because they drink too much, they smoke too much, they don't take care of themselves. In the research, they found when they studied the early deaths by social class, they found that 13% could be attributed to drinking, smoking, not taking care of yourself. The majority of early deaths were directly related to living in polluted neighborhoods, mm. lead paint, mold. Um, the water, the, the lack of access to preventative care. So by the time you see a, a health professional, it's typically too late. Uh, the stress of poverty itself, which we know affects immunity. Uh, so people are sick a whole lot more and then they can't get the preventative care. We certainly saw this during COVID because people who are in poverty were much more likely to die, <laughs> to get it and to die. Uh, and people in COVID, people of color, the same issues, like that access point to that preventative care. You don't have a doctor you can just go to. So the, the traumas that are linked to poverty are really the, the way your family are treated in society. So we didn't look right. We didn't talk right. Uh, I said, ain't every other word. I didn't know when to say seen or saw or how those people know when to say gone or went. I didn't even know I wasn't speaking middle-class sentence structure, but I knew my whole life that people couldn't hear me because professionals in the health field and other professionals would just talk over me and around me and about me, never like looking at me and saying, what do you think? Or what would be helpful to you? Or what would you like to happen? And so, so just that, 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 isolation and that that treatment of my mom would leave a helping profession uh she'd go in to ask for help for food or whatever and she would leave in tears mm -hmm. uh the tone of voice that people talk to her <sighs> if you're poverty informed it'll curl your skin 
if you ever listen, just go to a health clinic, go to a welfare office, go to a, a high poverty school and just sit and close your eyes and listen to how people in the crisis of poverty are talked to. Uh, it, it'll really curl your skin and how we see them. So at age 28, I landed, I, I actually dropped out of school at 15 and married Jerry, who was from generational migrant labor poverty. His family worked that day for food that night. Nobody literate or maybe functionally literate. Most of my family members, they can't read and write. Uh, some of them, when you ask, hey, sign your name, they're going to sign an X. Yeah. Uh, some of them could read a little bit, but they couldn't read, uh, you know, the medical discharge paperwork. They couldn't read that. They couldn't fill out a form. Uh, and they weren't going to let you know that either because the shame of poverty equates yeah. with the shame of literacy. And mm -hmm. uh, so if you said to one of my family members, hey, do you understand this paperwork? Are you going to be able to follow these discharge orders? They'd be like, oh, yeah, no, I got it. No, I don't need any help. Nope, nope. And what I teach, we do a lot of communicating more effectively across poverty barriers, uh, education series. And what I teach is pay attention to nonverbals because nonverbals are the majority of communication. So if somebody really understands, you'll see their facial expressions, their body postures. Oh yeah, no, I, I can do. It won't be that very stiff, uh, no matching nonverbal to go with it. Um, so I, I dropped out of school at 15, Jerry and I got married and began our life exactly as we had grown up. I had my honeymoon in a cherry field in Washington state. <clears throat> I had six months of the ninth grade and he, he had dropped out of seventh grade. So the kinds of jobs you can get when you're not literate are gonna be jobs where you work that day for food that night, jobs where you don't get treated with respect, you don't move up, you still get evicted, you still go hungry. Um, according to census data, majority of people in the United States, they work more than one job and they can't afford rent. According to HUD, there's not one town, rural or urban in the United States, if you're earning minimum wage on disability or on TANF welfare, you can afford even a modest apartment. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly why we see so many people in tents, cars, campers, doubled up, tripled up, and think about that in terms of, of health, determinants of health. Uh, so at age 28, I landed, well, I got my GED at 26, and 10 years later, my doctorate and studied poverty all the way. Uh, but at 28, I landed at University of Portland and was finally around people who were making it, people who had grown up in privilege. And my definition of privilege is you got a roof over your head, you got food in your fridge, your health and transportation needs are met, and you're surrounded by people who move up in their jobs and earn a living. Uh, so I'm around folks and I'm seeing them do very caring behaviors, donating time and money. And, and I'm thinking, this is so incongruent with what I grew up with. I, I remember being 12 years old at a high poverty school. And I told the teacher, I don't want to go outside. People fight out there. And she said, nothing I can do. You need to get outside. So I went outside. I was beat up. I remember just handfuls of my hair falling out no one cares. So I, I at 28 was firmly convinced that the people who are making it don't care about the people who are not. And here I am now in this environment seeing caring behaviors. And I'm thinking this is not congruent with my 28 years of being pretty much homeless. So I started talking to people about poverty and I learned really quickly they cared. And Mother Teresa said, uh, to believe your fellow human beings don't care is more painful than hunger. Oh. I completely agree with her. Uh, 
so I learned they cared, but in the same breath, I learned that they didn't have a clue. Mm -hmm. They could no more describe my lived experience in generational poverty than I could talk about middle-class norms, like wait for everyone to get a plate before you eat to be polite. Mm -hmm. I live in the deepest poverty with five brothers. What do you think would happen if I waited for everyone to get a plate? Yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> so very often the behavior that we ask people to do, it makes no sense in their context. Mm -hmm. And if I'm a health professional and I don't understand the differences between generational, working class, immigrant, situational, mixed class, in my book, See Poverty Be the Difference, I go into many different lived experiences of poverty because I began to understand we graduate people from college to be doctors and nurses and social workers and psychiatrists and probation officers and elected officials and teachers and principals. I've literally, I typically speak to about 90,000 people a year wow. and I've literally asked thousands of helping professionals, elected officials, superintendents, school board members, doctors. How many of you have had the course history of poverty in the United States of America? I just never see a hand, wow. not in K-12, not in higher ed. So, so what is that saying? If we don't know our history, we are mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. doomed to repeat it. And that's what I, I see, see happening in healthcare, in education, where you have, uh, so like in the 1700s, they made it illegal to be poor. In the Pennsylvania area, they said, if you can't feed your family, you have to wear a four inch pee on your sleeve and it has to be bright red or blue. And they wrote notes saying, if we can just embarrass them, they'll quit acting poor. Oh my gosh, I had no idea. Yeah, a lot of what you see today in terms of our thinking, our, our subconscious thinking and our, um, our, our um, actions, are rooted in this historical thinking. I mean, historically we had the worthy poor and the unworthy poor. So if a person with seven teeth comes into the, to the emergency room, do they get treated differently than someone with a full set? Yes, mm -hmm. they do. Mm -hmm. almost overwhelmingly and certainly race can play into that as well so we have a five-hour poverty race and consciousness institute that i do with my my dear friend dr sharif abdullah he does deep identity work around race mm -hmm. and and when you look at the, the getting the deep understanding of poverty the traumas that poverty presents uh constant evictions uh going hungry watching the people you love go hungry and so many people believe there's not hunger in America. They'll say, well, there's no hunger in America. There's just obesity, which really shows our ignorance about what you can buy. Uh, if you're on SNAP food stamps, you get about $1.80 per meal per person. So what do you think people are going to buy? They're going to buy the carbs, the starches, the quick, the easy, the fast, or what I call heart attack food. Um, and once in a while, you'll see they're going to get something that those people have so they can feel special, too. Mm -hmm. um, and then watch everybody get mad because you used your food stamps to get it because we don't understand that that need, that human need to belong and to fit in. And it's all part of that. So so let me break down some of these biases that you've so beautifully articulated. The first one I heard you talk about is this belief that. Um, people in poverty um, are killing themselves basically through alcoholism, smoking, those types of things, where in actuality, did you say only 13% mm -hmm. of health outcomes yes. can be related? Okay. So yes. if you're, if you're a, a physician listening to this, right. And, and you 
even with the best of intention, have this bias, right? That this person coming into your office is, you know, smoking or drinking, right? How would you want providers to just reframe how they're thinking about this? Dr. Amy, I think that is a great question and so important. So if you look at, um, when I'm out doing uh, keynotes and breakouts and doing my institutes, people will say, well, Dr. Beagle, they're poor because they're drug addicts. And here, here's what I teach. How many of you have ever heard of a wealthy person who struggles with a medical condition of addiction? Absolutely. Um, let's just say it together. Brittany, Charlie, Elvis, Michael, Justin, Paris. <laughs> yes. Addiction is not a poverty issue. Mm-hmm. Addiction happens in all social classes. And as a matter of fact, there's more money to buy it in privilege. Yes. <laughs> the poverty issue is access to treatment that's consistent with the literature. So the literature says, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're addicted to harder drugs, uh, you need one year of intense rehab. I work with communities around the country and they'll say, well, Dr. Beagle, we have a five-day rehab program. Those people really want the help or number one answer to that medical condition of addiction is incarceration. Let's put them in a cage. I was training doctors in Boston and this physician said, I never thought about that, but that's true. We're caging people uh, who are very sick. It is a medical condition. And we, we do fill our courtrooms. And, and the other side of that is we spend billions of dollars on the symptoms of poverty, way cheaper to do the preventative and actually provide the year long rehab program. Most communities I work in, they'll say, we have a 30 day rehab program. Uh, We have a nine month wait list. So let's say I get into a nine month wait list. I mean, I get into a 30 day rehab program. I go through 30 days for hard drugs like meth. I'm gonna go right back to it. And then this is how we treat our fellow human beings. You didn't love your kids enough. Mm -hmm. You didn't want a better life. Mm-hmm. What we should be saying, we didn't set you up for success. Right. Same with the disease of alcoholism. So how many of you have ever heard of somebody in the middle-class world who struggles with the disease of alcoholism? Mm-hmm. I mean, and how many of you know it's a disease and not a behavior? Because typically the way it's treated for people in the crisis of poverty, they'll say, well, I got two days of detox after they arrested me. Britney Spears spent 40000 a month in the Caribbean to get healthy. And she got healthy and people said, yay, Brittany. And I said, yay, Brittany. And what about people who live in the crisis of poverty? So, so for medical professionals, the critical piece is to separate the illness from the people, separate the poverty from the people and start being an advocate and, and helping people to navigate the, I mean, we, it's not like we need to study this. We know what to do. The, the research that I quoted of one year for those harder drugs is from the eighties. We know what to do, but we don't have the will because of the stereotypes and myths about poverty and the people who live in it. Mm-hmm. So sex abuse, child abuse, domestic violence, people say, well, they're, that's their sex abusers, they're domestic. That happens in all social classes too. So I used to bring in articles like, uh, look what this judge did, look what this lawyer did, look what this senator did. Now I just say, anybody hear the news? Weinstein, Epstein, Catholic pre-scandal, the gymnast doctor, the... Those issues are not poverty issues, but when you're not poverty informed, what we do is we take all the social ills in humanity and we put them on people in crisis who have no voice. Mm-hmm. So one of the ways we can begin to shift is to begin th- to think about affordability and accessibility, right? Because those who have means like, you know, you were mentioning Britney mm-hmm. Spears going off, you know, for 
X amount of days and, and doing better. Well, of course she has money and time and resources, right? So yes. to begin to shift, first of all, affordability and accessibility. And then I love what you're saying for, for providers to really think about separating the disease from groups of people, right? It's critical because actually the group that has the highest incidence of alcoholism in the United States is not people in poverty. It's attorneys. Uh, <laughs> as a group, they have the highest incidence of alcoholism. There's more money to buy it. But but when you when you frame it, you know, the person who I actually had some judges who taught me a new word when I first started training judges, um, functional alcoholic. Yes. Yeah. Um, so if you, you can drink in your den and nobody really pays attention. Um, but if you're in the crisis of poverty, if you're on the streets, it's more, you got a spotlight on you. Uh, so these behaviors happen in all social classes. It's just that you, the access to treatment, to health treatment. And the same is true for, for things like your teeth. You know, I, my brother's mouth is uh, full of super glue because he, he bought a tube of super glue uh, and he couldn't get it open. So he was biting down on the lid and it dripped into his mouth and killed the pain. Oh. So every time he got a, a toothache, he would go get a tube of super glue from the dollar store. It makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And I was training janitors at an insert. I was training. It was education in service. And this janitor came up and he said, Dr. Beagle, you know, you said your brother makes his teeth stop hurting with super glue. How's he do that? Cause I got this tooth. Yeah. Oh. Two women, that same uh, in-service training came up. So we both work in a cafeteria and because of district budget cuts, they're mandating that we take three days a month off and that disqualified us for the district health plan. So they told us go apply for the state plan. And there they told us we make $12 too much. Wow. Wow. So you, you see the access, the access to preventative care, the access to, to, to regular care, whether mm -hmm. it's dental or eyes or, or your, your body. I mean, I had my first baby at 17. I had six pregnancies in the war zone of poverty. Only two of my babies lived. Um, my one pound, nine ounce Joyce Marie lived nine hours. My four pound Jennifer had heart surgery at 11 days. Yeah, the, the infant mortality rates for women in the crisis of poverty in the United States is equal to developing nations. I mean, we are the wealthiest country in the world. And so yet we have these. Say, so, so when you say there's a confusion of care. Yes. Right. That the people don't care. I mean, the, 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 the example you just gave of regarding infant mortality is, is heartbreaking. And I can't, having worked with so many women in poverty, I can't, they don't care any less than any mom with resources and, and access and affordability yeah. does. No. Say more That's... though about why do we confuse care? Is it, is it, does it make it easier? Well, so, so if I say to you, Dr. Amy, my parents never, ever went to a school conference. What do we say about those parents? Oh, they don't care about their kids. They don't want to be, they don't love them. But yeah. My mom would say, I ain't going in there and make fool of myself. Those people want to talk about school. Don't know anything about school. What's the point of me going in there? But judges have that as a criteria for whether children are returned from foster care. Do the parents go to school conferences? So every one of our systems, be it health or courts or, or educate, it's set up by what would middle-class people do? Well, they'd be on time. Well, how many, how many people are on time when they're in crisis? 
what would middle-class people do? Well, they would pay their bill. They would do. So we, we have this perception because the United States is in flat out denial that it's a social class society. Bush senior said, there's no social classes in America. That's over in Europe. Yeah. Uh, beg to differ. You could ask one question and just turn that on its head. Mm-hmm. How come I can go to any community in the United States, call up a real estate agent and say, excuse me, where are the good schools? Mm-hmm. That's right. See, as long as we, we, we teach that we all start the same opportunities are out there if you really want them. Why did we go to the schools middle-class people would never send their kids to? Mm-hmm. And why, why, did, why did some people born with a pillow to lay their head on and others not? And mm-hmm. um, we don't all start the same. And so for physicians, for nurses, for health administrators, we got to get a deeper understanding of poverty and be able to separate the poverty from its people because our subconscious mind responds before our conscious mind. And in a society where we don't educate about poverty, we are programmed and socialized with the myths and stereotypes and they get in the way of us seeing the person, of us treating the person, mm-hmm. of us really uh, understanding that poverty is a problem, not the people. Yeah. I mean, what they're doing makes complete and utter sense in their situation with the experiences and exposures that they've had and, and beginning to understand that. I mean, you do you said it very well. We have an epidemic of children being taken away from their parents because of poverty, not neglect. And people don't know the difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you don't have food, it, it's highly related probably to poverty. Mm-hmm. And so understanding, gaining that understanding is, is essential uh, that, you know, if, just because you don't have food, that doesn't mean your parents don't love you. Uh, oh. <laughs> they'll feed you before they feed themselves. So, so let me run you through like a couple of scenarios that I do with medical providers. And I, because I think you'll, you'll speak so much more eloquently than I, because this is your wheelhouse of training. But so one scenario I run by medical professionals is, okay, so a a mom comes in for her child's well visit um, that she's uh, postponed two other times. And she comes in with the child and her two other children. And she's kind of, you know, appearing to the front office desk kind of haphazard and hurried. And um, the front office desk person greets her by saying, you know, you're late for your appointment. We might have to reschedule. Walk us through that scenario. What's happening? What might, what, what should the medical staff be thinking about, Donna? Well, I'll share two things. So one, when I began studying where do people learn about poverty, the number one the number one source uh, for education about poverty is the media. Mm-hmm. So you get the extreme worst case scenarios, dramatization uh, is not our universities. Uh, so when you study poverty, and I have studied the history of poverty, United States of America, the most common metaphor used in the literature is war. So when humans don't have our fundamental needs met, what mode are we in? We're in survival. And it's not only one bullet of poverty hitting the families, it's multiple bullets, hunger, evictions, cars being towed. We have a housing affordability crisis. We have a childcare affordability crisis. We have a hunger crisis. We have a transportation crisis. We don't have systems to get people where they need to be when they need to be there. (coughs) Excuse me. That's okay. So we really don't have transportation. You know, I've I've trained in Paris. I've trained in London. You don't need a car there. Um, (laughs) But that is not the case in the United States. 
to, for single parents to get where they need to get, they're going to be late or the tire's going to blow or a kid's going to be sick or they have to take care of their mom. There's multiple, multiple uh, impacts of that evil villain poverty that are preventing them from getting where they need to be when they need to be there, including the transportation crisis. So I was working with a school district. I have a, this uh, tool called Poverty Competency Assessment Action Planning Tool. And so I do an assessment of the organization. Um, are these policies really set up to meet people where they are who live in generational poverty or working class Absolutely. poverty or any of the many types of poverty and look at programs and services and are these and look at individual professional development levels in terms of poverty competency where are people on the poverty competency scales and what professional development's needed and what kind of partnerships are needed so i'm working with this school and this teacher said you got to help me with this kid in my class she said i have tried everything and i said okay what'd you try I took away recess. I don't let him have extracurricular activities. Uh, and I don't let him do any athletics. And he's still late every single day and he will not do his homework. And I'm like, well, what do you call homework when you don't have a home? And how many people are on time when they're in crisis? Mm -hmm. Herbert Gons is a scholar who wrote a book called War on the Poor. And he says, we keep asking people in crisis to act middle class. And when yeah. they don't, we punish them. Take your three buses right back home. Uh, you're late for your scheduled appointment. So this particular incident, I said to the teacher, what's going on with this little guy? Mm -hmm. Seek to know the why behind a behavior. And she said, I don't know. He just won't get here. No, there's a reason. There's a reason. And I talked to the family and I ended up finding this kid living in the back of a pickup truck with his grandpa mm -hmm. for seven months. He made it to school. And when he got there, he was hammered. So in their, uh, as they became poverty informed in their action planning process, they changed their tardy slips to, we're so glad you're here. Oh, that small thing. So going back to that scenario, right? The mom comes in, she's just, she's not late, late. She's just a little bit late for her appointment. She's got kids in tow. She's a little, you're saying one little teeny tiny thing that that front office person can do is say, yeah. we're so glad you're here. Yes. Welcome. And, and giving people the benefit of the doubt yes. that there is a why behind that behavior. Uh, and you don't know, you don't know what bullets of poverty are hitting people. What did it take for her to get there? Mm -hmm. uh, if you actually seek to know the why, you probably stand in awe of her. Yes. Oh my gosh. Oh, I love that. I'm going to, it makes me almost tearful. I have to say, if you seek to know the why, you would almost be in awe of her. How many things she may have had to do or overcome or adjust or change or fix or navigate just to get there for that appointment. The third appointment rescheduled to make sure that her baby was getting well childcare. There is a why. There is a why behind every behavior. And, and there actually is theory for this. And from my background, I never thought I would talk theory, but I can. And every bit of my work is theory-based. Faulty attribution theory is when you attribute motive to someone's behavior without contextualizing it. Well, mom's lazy. She just won't go to the school conference. What would the mom say? <laughs> if you actually talk to this mom who's late to the doctor, and is she late? She's probably right on time for, for all she had to go through. Uh, it's interesting because the United States operates in the middle class world. The, the time is this whole concept of nine to five. And most people in the crisis of poverty aren't in the nine to five system. Yeah. 
and they're mm-hmm. dominant oral culture uh, communicators and learners. They get their information word of mouth that affects how you see the world. So, so I was actually, there's a fellow named Martin Burt who just wrote a book called Who Owns Poverty? And it's an unpublished manuscript at, at the time I, I, I connected with him. And he's done all of his research for 30 years in other countries. And somebody told me you would love his work because it's similar to yours. And I got his unpublished manuscript and it was my work. It was like we had reached the same conclusions and I was so excited to talk to him. So we we set up a call and he's in Paraguay and I never called Paraguay. So I'm like, I don't, it took me 10 minutes to get into the call. (laughs) And I said, Martin, I am so sorry I'm late. And he said, "Uh, Donna, we don't do time like that. Only the United States does. He said, the rest of the world is more dominant oral culture. When you arrive, you're on time. And, and people will push back in, in, in our systems and say, but we have to have a schedule. We have, yeah, you do. And it's not going to be everyone who has the bullets of poverty hitting them. But we need to be flexible enough to meet people where they are because those are the people we are losing. Those are the people who are dying younger. Those are the people who can't get access to care. So it's it, it, when we think of it as everybody's going to need to, everybody's going to be late. That's not really true. The case you're going to have some families where they're constantly hit, and those are the families we need to make flexibility, uh, work them in, make it happen, uh, and and be able to, to to do that. We would do that for a friend if you had a friend show up. And, and, and you were a physician and you had a schedule, you would work that friend in, you would work them in. So how about if they're your friend? How do we see everyone as our neighbors and our friends? I was training at a school district and I asked the principal, tell me about your kids. And she said, well, they're not mine. And I was like, oh, yes, they are. They're not going to beam up. You know, we have to begin to see caring for people as caring for our neighbors, caring for our friends, because we would treat them a whole lot differently if we did that. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh, that's so true. Um, All right. Let me run another scenario by you because you give such beautiful context. Um, So the first example I gave you was kind of more, you know, kids, pediatric mom. Another one might be for an adult provider, um, you know, that somebody is medically noncompliant with their diabetes management and they're not getting better and their blood sugars are all over the place and they may require, you know, surgeries coming up because they're not managing their diabetes. Well, can you give context to that? What that might, what we might, what we should be considering? Well, the concept I would teach here is dialectical thinking, Mm -hmm. uh, which means any situation can be framed in any number of ways, depending on how you frame it. Mm -hmm. So you're framing it as medically uncompliant. I wouldn't frame it that way at all. I mean, that's, that sets us up for this person's doing something wrong. Yes. Um, Not, Hey, help me understand Uh, what would be helpful to you. What's in your way. I worked with the FDA for three years. I did research for them and really looking, they were like, Dr. Beagle, we, we know there are five causes of food outbreaks. We know them and we teach them to food servers and they don't change their behavior. So I delved into that for them. And there's a great report on my website, Communication Across Barriers, my company, um, called it's the Food Safety Report. And what I learned was that, that the health regulators were not seen as allies. They were seen as coming in to get you, catch you. Uh, or like police that they perceived as police. 
that the health regulators were presenting information and education in a very linear print middle-class laden uh, style, whereas most food service workers are not from the middle-class world, um, mm -hmm. unless you're in an exclusive uh, uh, restaurant where there's college students. Most yes. food service workers are, are in working class or generational or immigrant poverty. So mm -hmm. the, the way they were sharing the information, and then they were challenging they were challenging beliefs like, well, my grandma left the chicken out all day and it didn't hurt us. So, it, it, you know, change theory says to change behavior, the person has to see the direct benefit. Mm -hmm. And what I heard from people, well, my manager leaves it out. Uh, the owner doesn't use, doesn't, doesn't use different towels. So the behavior that they wanted to see wasn't being modeled. That was, that was one of the big findings out of there. And the communication wasn't seen. And they weren't seen as allies, as people that you trust or you take information from. The other big piece was that information was given out of context. Mm -hmm. So the doctor may tell you do this, that, and the other thing. And then you go home or you go to your car where you're living and none of that makes sense. That what they're asking you to do is next to impossible. So part of your work is to understand what is that, help me understand what's your situation. I know what you need to do. Now I've got to put that in that context and say, this is how that could happen. And, and then you create that shared meaning and, and modeling it and showing people how to do it, not just talking or just giving them a handout. Because I, in my research with people in poverty, 92% said when they leave a helping professional, they have no idea what to do next. Oh, <laughs> and I'm sure people have seen that. You give somebody information, everything they know, need to know is in their medical discharge packet, everything. And they walk away and they go, where do I go? What'd she say? What's that word? And too often we're using medical terminology. We're using examples people can't relate to. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I use the example of... Um, just to reinforce the dialectical thinking, mm -hmm. I was in Phoenix, Arizona, training attorneys. One of my books is Breaking Poverty Barriers to Equal Justice, because we have a justice system that works pretty well for people who have and a very, very different one for people who don't. Mm -hmm. So we walked out of the training and this attorney, it was 113 degrees outside. And this attorney wow. says, oh, wow, this feels like a sauna. That same moment I said, man, this feels like a laundromat. See, it's the same situation, but we're each going to describe it based on our lived experience. So we use examples from our lived experience. So if we haven't understood the different contexts of poverty, uh, generational working class, all those different ones I was talking about that they talk about and see poverty be the difference. You don't get that. So your examples, I, I just see all the time examples just like crossing and people walking away like what do I or the vocabulary. I mean, I did not know the words that my teachers used when I go to the dictionary, five more words I didn't know. And mm -hmm. part of the way I made it through community college when I started at 26, my GED, my brother, all five of my brothers have been incarcerated, but my brother, Wayne, he spent his 12 years in prison reading. So I couldn't read my textbooks. I didn't know the vocabulary. I didn't know the inferences. I didn't know the examples. And when I would ask the professionals, they would send me to read in books people, my people didn't write. So I would write Wayne letters when he was in prison. And I would say, Wayne, we're studying this. I got a test in three weeks, find out everything you can. He would write me back 25 pages. Oh my gosh. Vocabulary words that I knew he'd say, Don, I remember we lived in that Barry camp and we were doing this. That's kind of what they're talking about here. And he would use, oh. he would use familiar experiences. Well, that's my doctorate's educational leadership. Learning theory says, if you 
if you use examples that people have no frame of reference for, they can't grab that knowledge. They yes. can't grab it. And also if you, if you tell someone something and they're not able to apply it and there's not say it, say it again, say it another way, repetition in different ways, it doesn't move to long-term memory. So it doesn't stay. So that's mm-hmm. part of the communication work that we do, but understanding that, that so often uh, if we can get the, the, the poverty informed knowledge and, and separate the people from the poverty Mm-hmm. And see the housing affordability crisis, the childcare affordability crisis, the transportation crisis, the hunger crisis, the lack of access to those two true structural causes of poverty as the problem, and see the people mm-hmm. <laughs> is incredible. I mean, people in poverty know a lot. They know a lot. My mom, she basically had to become a doctor because we didn't have one. So when uh, I had, I, I told you I had six kids in the war zone of poverty, had two kids in privilege, both health, healthy full-term babies because they had what we need to create healthy babies, prenatal care, nutrition, stability. So Juliet is born and she has a pediatrician. My, my kids that were born in the war zone of poverty ha- didn't have that. They, they didn't have a pediatrician. So Julia gets sick and Uh, my mom is like, you need to do do this and this and this and this, and she'll be fine. And I'm like, mom, I have a pediatrician. So I called the pediatrician and told him Juliet's symptoms. And he told me exactly what my mom said. (laughs) (laughs) I love uh, that. Never (laughs) underestimate what people do know um, and how valuable they can be in their own health. If Mm -hmm. we're able to actively listen Mm-hmm. and hear their perspectives. So listening first is a great way to really deeply understand where someone's coming from and what might get in the way of the treatment that you're suggesting. So in this example, when, if I circle back to it with the diabetes and adult management and whatnot, I love that you said, right, that right away we're vilifying this person by, by calling them medically non-compliant and that one way we can shift right away is to ask them, I'm looking at my notes, help me understand and help me understand what's getting in your way. Because mm-hmm. now they're really going to invite a conversation and, and be able to hopefully, like you just said, sit back and listen so that they could provide the best care or the best plan based on what that person perceives he or she needs. Yes. And there's, there's other variables that can come into play. So when I teach about capacity, I talk about internal capacity, external capacity. Mm -hmm. So internal capacity, that's things like, do I have any hope? Do I have any confidence? Can I read? Uh, Do I have a learning challenge? Uh, Do I have untreated mental health? So those are things we can't see. So you say, Hey, here's your diabetic kit. Here's you need to go to, well, that's noise is going on. That's going to get in the way. And if I'm not able to hear their narrative and pick that up, then I'm going to struggle. So external capacities, things like, do I have gas? Do I have money to buy the insulin? Uh, My sister-in-law, Matilda, married my brother. She was on welfare with three kids, married my brother. She was from deeper generational poverty than I because she didn't have my mom. And my mom was so inventive and creative and resourceful. She would figure out a way, not always legal, but she would figure out a way. So till uh, at, she's diagnosed with diabetes, has to um, uh, do the needles, that kind of mm-hmm. diabetes. So she um, marries my brother. They take away her medical card. So now she has no money for the insulin or the needles. So she starts reusing the needles 
stretching out the insulin, has a massive heart attack, um, paralyzes one side of her body. She ends up with a pacemaker. How much do you think that cost? So that was when she was 35. She died at 50. Between 35 and 50, she had nine pacemakers. Oh my gosh. What would have happened had we just been poverty informed and connected her to the insulin and then what she needed. Mm -hmm. So, so we spend billions and billions on the symptoms of poverty, not on investing in children and adults who live in the crisis of poverty. Uh, And so much of that is so very much related to ignorance. We see people as other, they're not people like me on the, on the cover of my book, see poverty be the difference. There's some little kids that lived in a storage shed for two years, taking care of an infant sibling while the parents worked three jobs, trying to get out of the storage shed. And this woman on a plane, she saw these children and she said, Oh, those people, they don't have any love in their lives. They never have any fun. And I said, you know, I was born into generations of poverty. We have a lot of love. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of fun. We ain't got no money. (laughs) We're the same species. I mean, every feeling you've ever had, I've had it. And it started with those people, right? Yeah. Yes. And this, but the segregation and the isolation of poverty perpetuates it. If you just think about who the middle-class people hang out with, Mm -hmm. Um, we are so segregated by, by social class. So if you're in the crisis of poverty, you're probably with other people who are in similar situations. So there's nobody to ask. And, and, and what's normal is what's around you. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and again, if you, if you go, I used to wonder, you know, how is it, no matter what state we go to, we find the neighborhood where everyone's in crisis, everyone. Uh, I know that now I was housing commissioner for four years in Portland um, and my studies of the history of poverty. I mean, there's no landlord that would have rented to us because we had evictions on our history and evictions are seen as a character flaw, even though according to HUD, there's nowhere for a person to live if they're on disability welfare or minimum wage and even minimum wage plus minimum wage is still under the poverty guideline, which is very faulty. The federal poverty guideline says a family of four needs right about 27,000. It doesn't include childcare, healthcare, or transportation costs. If you add those in, the Economic Policy Institute would say you need 55,000 and that's not gonna get you trips to Hawaii. So you have so many people to fall between that 27,000 and 55,000 they can't ask, they can't access healthcare. They can't, they're falling through the cracks in, in our, they can't get Pell Grants. They can't get, uh, they can't get Head Start preschool for kids. Uh, so, so we have a lot of work to do mm-hmm. to really, really understand the poverty, to, to, to look at our healthcare system and really begin to look at what are we doing to understand the communities in which we work. Uh, what are we doing to understand the barriers that are in their way to preventative care, to access, access the services that are so needed to be healthy? And guess what? When people are healthy and people thrive, they give back. Oh, <laughs> yes. Um, you know, I, so I have, I could talk to you forever. I'm learning so much, even just by listening to you. Um, for the sake of time, um, I'm, I'm going to link up to your website and all the work you do because we're just scratching the surface, Donna, right? I mean, people need intensive work around poverty awareness, right? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. So, 
I mean, what people will say to me is I've, I've been doing, I've been a physician for 30 years in this high poverty community. I needed this year one, (laughs) or they'll say I've treated people that way. I've said that about people. Mm -hmm. And I say, how could you not? Mm -hmm. We don't teach poverty competencies. We don't Mm -hmm. teach the poverty informed knowledge Mm -hmm. and, and the research. Most of the people who teach about poverty and do research on poverty, I don't know if this would surprise you, but they've never been hungry. They've not been evicted. So you've got a whole lot of people who look in at people in the crisis of poverty and try to describe what's going, but they're not able to to contextualize it and really set it apart. So that's why we do these really intensive two-day poverty immersion institutes. We bring them to communities. Um, And this is 31 years. And all of my work has been word of mouth. I've worked all 50 states and and multiple countries. Uh, Our team... Uh, every perspective that we have is from the perspectives of people who've lived working class poverty or immigrant poverty or some level of poverty and gain that, that, that knowledge base, that foundational understanding so that we can communicate and relate and leave people in a better place than we find them, um, which is what has to be all of our goals to leave people in a better place than we find them. I agree. So does it go without saying that um, in the medical field, we are lacking folks with lived experience and community educators. And, you know, do you want to say just a little bit about that? There's no doubt, no doubt. And it's not only the medical field, it's, it literally is every field. When I first started doing this work 31 years ago, people said, are you going to choose health to work with or educators or elected officials or faith-based groups or... And I said, I wouldn't be walking my talk because every one of these sectors impact the lives of people who are are in that crisis situation. And if you notice throughout this podcast, my language, Mm -hmm. I teach people to pay attention to their language. So if I hear someone say, I have to deal with those people in poverty, I know it's time to go to work because deal with is a negative connotation. You don't deal with something you believe in or care about. You deal with the toilet running over, you deal with the car breaking down. So even our language, but our language shapes our actions toward people. And remember most of the the bias of, well, they're having babies to get welfare. They're getting rich off welfare. Those are real beliefs that people hold in their subconscious mind. Um, The truth is about welfare. I, I was on welfare in 1986, family of three got $408. Today, a family of three is going to get $478. So 1986 to today and 23 states have passed laws saying if you have an additional child and you're on welfare, you don't get any cash for the newborn. No, we won't help that baby. Mm -hmm. Uh, Welfare was originally created in the 30s because our American values were we want a parent in the home and children are our future. So we're willing to pay for a parent to stay home. Today, the policies are like baby's eyes are open, get to work. Don't have childcare. Not my friend. So, so you have you have these these separation of of human beings, and we're not seeing our connectedness. No. Um, what impacts you? Uh, what affects you affects me. We're gonna pay. Uh, mm-hmm. It's one hundred and fifty thousand dollars per kid the first year in the juvenile justice system, mm-hmm. first year in the foster care system. One kid, sixty five thousand dollars. So, look at you know there was a family of seven five kids, mom, dad, mom, dad worked at a senior care center. So they were getting hours sometimes and not other times. And 
they got evicted and they moved to a storage shed because they couldn't get first and last and deposits. They didn't have three times the amount of the income. They had criminal convictions, so no one would rent to them. No one will hire them. So they move in a storage shed. Dad builds beds into the walls of the storage shed. Very cool, I thought. Child <laughs> welfare found out and five kids taken away from their parents for poverty, not neglect. And again, mm-hmm. neglect is typically related to untreated mental health because mm-hmm. a centered parent isn't going to burn a kid with cigarettes. A centered parent isn't going to feed themselves before their child. That's mm-hmm. Those are typically related. And how do we address mental health for people in the crisis of poverty in this wealthy nation? Yeah. Well, we shut down mental health facilities and we incarcerate them. We don't address it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so, but when we empower people with the knowledge, uh, the poverty informed knowledge, the tools, the understanding, the communication skill sets, the ability to relate, uh, to connect, to build trust. I, I teach people how to build trusting relationships in one minute. And that increases follow through. Uh, so when you build the, that knowledge base in, And then you take the expertise of the doctors, the expertise of the nurses, the expertise of the hospital administrators, it's game on. We're going to, we're going to turn the Titanic and we will have healthcare that's responsive and inclusive and equitable for people who live in the crisis of poverty. Mm. Okay. So I hope everybody that's listening to this podcast goes to Dr. Beagle's website, works with her company, does trainings and intensives, because we are just scratching the surface with this podcast. My goal is to bring awareness. Um, may I ask you just what I call a, a few of my um, rapid fire questions before I let you absolutely, go? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so uh, the first one is, um, what is just one thing, and I know you mentioned many, but one thing you want to highlight that people get wrong about poverty-informed work? The answer to poverty is people, Um, but it's poverty informed people. Mm -hmm. So you hold so many tools to make a difference, but the biases, the programming about poverty and the people who can live in it, who live in it, it can get in the way. It can get in the way of really making the difference that you need to make. So, I mean, that's, that's a people who understand that poverty is a problem. That's where we see systemic change because we make up the system. Yes. Okay. Um, If you could go back and talk to young Donna, what would you say to her? That poverty is the problem because what happens in the United States and it's unique to the United States. When you go to developing nations, I've I've worked in many developing countries. Now you see people who have nothing. Uh, I met a guy in Tobago. He just had a shack made out of grass and sticks, but what he had that people in the United States don't, is his sense of self, Mm. his confidence hadn't been stolen because there's an honesty about true poverty causes. So we have a broken infrastructure. We don't have an economic system. So when people immigrate to the United States, they often do better in our schools with their health because they haven't internalized that poverty. So they come with a four letter word called hope. And so if you're born in the land of opportunity, and you watch people work hard your whole life, still get evicted, still go hungry, uh, mm-hmm. you feel hopeless. So at 26, I didn't have any hope. I didn't have any confidence. I thought I had nothing to offer the planet. It, life was about subsisting. I, we just had to make it through the day and maybe my kids would be smarter than me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would love to have gotten 
we do work with people who live in poverty right now. We do our opportunity community mo model. It's a six hour uh, program to remove the shame, rebuild the hope, reduce the isolation and connect people to a poverty informed community. So no matter what door they walk through, they're treated with dignity and respect. I would encourage that. You mm -hmm. got to help people see they're not the problem. I, I, every time I listen to you, I get these epiphanies and that was one for me, but the, the, the idea of hope in a system has got to be either embedded or taught or nurtured or supported in order to begin to transform medicine, education, what have you. How, so, so two questions, um, uh, before we wrap up here, the first one is how do you stay hopeful and not heartbroken in all of the work that you're doing? Well, I, I really mean it when I say the answer to poverty is people. And I work with, I work with all sectors and when, and I've, I've seen it firsthand. I've seen people go uh, from the blame and the judgment and the not understanding to advocacy and activism and care and nurturing in ways that matter, able to meet people where they are. And the organizations that we work with, you can see it, you can feel it. Uh, Amarillo College, they have 102 Beagle certified poverty coaches. So they are, including the college president. I started working with them in 2011. Nationally, if a, if a student from poverty makes it to college, only 11% leave with a degree or certificate. Amarillo College has over 70% completion now. Wow. And they, they call their um, campus a culture of caring, but what it is is a poverty-informed campus. They have ongoing professional development from the Beagle Poverty Coaches. They have, they've looked at their policies, their system to really say, are we really set up to help people who live in these different contexts of poverty? Uh, what community partners might we need to really truly do that comprehensive poverty-informed approach? It's, it's, it's like with hospitals, hospitals can't address all the complexities of poverty alone. Yeah. So strengthening the community partnerships is critical. Um, and, but it starts with really beginning to build poverty informed people within the hospital mm -hmm. at all levels, mm -hmm. so that when people intersect, we're able to hear them in a different way. When, when people come to my sessions, they'll often talk about they hear differently, they see things differently. Um, and that's just my master's is communication. That's, that's perception. Uh, so if you think about it, if you ever had a car and got rid of it and you got a different car that was a different color, make and model, think about before you got that car, how many did you see on the road? Mm -hmm. um, after you got it, how many did you see? Yeah. Uh, they're everywhere. That's so awesome. what happens with poverty informed perspective is once you know it, uh, you start seeing and hearing people in a different way mm -hmm. and you start thinking about your system the emergency room, the, the different components of the healthcare uh, system from that lens. And then you apply your amazing expertise as health professionals to that. And, and so my hope comes from seeing it firsthand, uh, seeing people come out of the woodwork once they understand that it, poverty is the problem and saying, what can I do and how can I do it? It really is transformative. I 100% I agree. Um, okay, last question before I wrap up. It's 11 o'clock at night um, and you have a food craving. What do you reach for? I'm, a, I'm, I'm addicted to um, hot cheese, like jalapeno cheese. <laughs> 
Oh, that's so funny. With crackers, with bread. Yeah, with... I like I like those little crackers that have the raisins in it. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I love those. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Um, so we'll link up to all the ways to work with you, Donna, in the show notes. Thank you. Because I just I think there's just not enough people that can do this work. We just need more and more and more people to be aware of this work mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and transforming this work. Um, I could talk to you all day. Like I told you at the beginning, um, I was inspired by you at a conference, um, you know, having been a kid, one of five who, you know, grew up with a single mom and not a, a lot of financial resources, but a whole lot of love and unconditional regard. You just speak a language that's so relatable. And so thank you for being here and and thank you for sharing your lived experience so openly so that other people can learn from you. I really appreciate you. Thank you, Dr. Amy, my privilege and honor. And thank you for being a voice that realizes the importance of taking this subject on. The silence of poverty perpetuates it. Yeah, thank you. Well, that's it, friends. If you like what you're hearing in this space, I invite you to join us in the Provider Lounge, a learning collaborative to build resilience. It's an incredible group of physicians who meet monthly, get CME, and lean into conversations about trauma, resilience, and other tough topics. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to other people's stories and let them transform you. And keep sharing your own, because your humanity will heal others. We'll talk soon.